Have you ever met someone with a hidden agenda? I see some smirks. I see some nods. Sometimes we can call them ulterior motives. Hidden agendas, those things that are concealed behind someone's actions, that they have this hidden thing they actually want to happen, that they're not speaking, and their actions don't necessarily correlate with maybe what their hidden agenda is or their stated purpose. Those are those things, perhaps, that we want to happen, but we don't necessarily tell anybody else. Got a couple stories. Sometimes hidden agendas, ulterior motives, are, are kind of innocent. Just recently, someone in our congregation, I heard, uh, said, yeah, you know, one of my kids wanted to make Mother's Day really special. And he's like, I think I'm going to fake sick on Sunday morning and not go to church. I can watch it online, but then when she comes home, I can have dinner ready. And so Mother's Day comes, and I'm talking with this mother, and I say, oh, where's so-and-so? Oh, he was sick. And, and, you know, dad came down, and he said, oh, he just threw up. You know, and, and the agenda here was faking sick, but the real one, which I don't, I don't lie, right? Uh, the real one was he wanted to honor his mother. So, so later in the day, I text the mother. I said, hey, how's so-and-so feeling? And she said, you knew, didn't you? I didn't respond to that text, I don't think. Sometimes hidden agendas happen somewhat innocently with family and friends. Like how families, particularly perhaps mothers or fathers, try to arrange gatherings to get a certain young man to perhaps meet their young daughter or a certain young daughter to meet their son. An innocent agenda of trying to develop a budding relationship. But sometimes hidden agendas and ulterior motives have a bit of a darker side, don't they? One of the things that we could read about, and there's even articles about this regarding Australia's government, allegations of hidden policy agendas are a feature prevalent in our government, but also in others. What are the hidden agendas? How do they hide them underneath thousands and thousands and thousands of words located in different bills in policy? I wonder if there's any hidden agendas in there. Hidden agendas trying to decide what will happen, what will go forth. But I think we could also talk about hidden agendas with neighboring. Sometimes it could be, well, I know that person has this really nice boat, and maybe if I'm really nice to them, they'll let me borrow it, or they'll take me out. 
But maybe that's not quite what we're getting at. Maybe it's more so when we have relationships with neighbors, the goal is to not have a hidden agenda of evangelism. We don't go into relationships saying, I am going to evangelize this person by being their neighbor. Here's a way to think about it that the authors of The Art of Neighboring uh, write. Neighboring is not an evangelism strategy. And if evangelism is your only motive, then you won't be a very good neighbor. However, if neighboring is done with the right posture, then people who don't know God will certainly come to know him. Sometimes we as Christians, perhaps myself included, can take on more of a salesman approach with evangelism. We think we got this great product, this thing that we can sell, but it's not really selling it because it's for free. And we sometimes use high-pressure sales tactics to accomplish our mission of evangelism. Have you ever seen the sign, do you know where you're going to go when you die? We try to make it this limited time offer that goes away. Much like you always see that one store that says going out of business sale, and it's been going out of business for three years. High pressure tactics is not the way to do evangelism. While the core desire for having others get to know Christ is an honorable and perhaps even innocent thing, neighbors can tell when you have something hidden up your sleeve. Neighbors can tell when you have an ulterior motive in being neighborly and nice. I think the the difference in the philosophy is like this. These two little phrases, listen to them. I'm only being your neighbor and showing God's love so you will follow Jesus. That would be one that would reflect an ulterior hidden agenda with people. The other option is this. Because I follow Jesus, I am a neighbor living out the love of God. You can see the one motive is that we are honoring God with the way we live, and by doing so, we will be fulfilling the two great commandments, that we would love God and that we would love other people. The other one puts an emphasis on the people and getting more, and evangelism, you could say. I'm only loving you so that you will follow Jesus, not I'm loving you because God first loved me. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as we think about this concept just a little bit more. I didn't check what page number it's on the Bibles in front of you, but hopefully you can get there. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, unlike the kingdoms that came before, Jesus' kingdom was different. The, the kingdoms that came before were, were often done so by force. There would be military strength that would be used to conquer regions, to put people under submission, to put people under their authority, to show that military might so people would listen to them and follow whatever that kingdom was going to do. But then Jesus' kingdom comes, and it's almost as if he took that playbook and he just threw it out the window and he said, you know what, a better idea, let's use the ordinary and mundane instead of war. Let's use the, the, the things that happen throughout the day as a way to propel and saturate God's kingdom within the very core of our being that all we would do is be able to live out his kingdom values. For many people, this is just a slow change over time. You ask folks in this room, perhaps they would say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. And that's But I'm sure their first understanding of Christ and what Christ means to their life is maybe a little bit different than what Christ means to them today for Christ took them on a journey to learn how to love and reflect and honor and glorify God as they went through their life. A slow change in our inner being as we push aside selfishness in our own desire and take upon the values of the kingdom. Kind of reflects a little bit the way the disciples lived. The disciples were, were called by Jesus from their, from their jobs, and they followed him through the ordinary and the mundane as they were walking through fields picking heads of grain. And if you follow the, the disciples enough in the Gospels, you see that they walked with Jesus a lot. And, and through those three years, Jesus continued to impart in them what it meant to be a follower of God. What does it mean to follow their rabbi named Jesus? And even after Jesus died, they were learning by way of the Spirit what it meant to live out their faith. Jesus didn't come in and select 12 and give them a holy download into their brain of everything all at once. Instead, he would use the ordinary, the stories. You know, Jesus taught in about 30%, 35% stories. He did so to show what his kingdom meant and how it meant to love others. And so here, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 
when we think about the salt, just like we did with the, the kids at the ta- or down here, we think of table salt, you know, grinder, we think of that. You know, I love salt. Don't tell my doctor. But what I think about when I think about salt is July, August, and that nice piece of piping hot corn. Think about slathering butter on that corn and then taking that shaker and just and then turn it a quarter turn again and turn it a quarter turn again and turn it a quarter And then making my beard smell terrible by just getting into that piece of corn. You know, we can, we can think of other aspects of, of using salt. My brother-in-law just smoked some meat yesterday, and I'm pretty sure there was some salt in the meat. He says he confirms that. There's some other uses of salt. Steve mentioned it with the kids up here that maybe we don't want to think about it, but the white stuff that falls in the middle of winter and turns over and glasses over into ice, we throw salt down on that to minimize the icing in the road. All those things are ways that that they would use salt in the ancient world too. I, I doubt that they were throwing butter and salt on corn, but they would throw salt on meat as a preservative, as a as a way to stop the decay of the meat that they had. They would they would use it too as kind of a method of payment. Did you know that Roman soldiers got an allotment of salt as a part of their payment? Pretty interesting. They would, they would use salt as a part of their diets because we need salt in us at least a little bit to, to stay healthy. It was a way to show friendship that we talked about earlier that people, when they would gather, if they would share bread and salt together, it was a sign of peace between the people, a beginning of a new relationship that maybe had gone awry before. But what does Jesus mean by losing saltiness? Have you ever poured too much salt on something? Yeah? Okay, there we go. Like, you had just a regular salt shaker, and someone thought they were funny, and they just placed the top on it. And, and you go to start pouring it on something, and all of a sudden, the whole thing falls out. How do you make salt less salty? My chemistry people? They're shaking. You can't make salt less salty. So... What does he mean by that? You know, the, the idea, if you take it further, is if, while the salt isn't going to preserve your food anymore, if it isn't going to have value, then it's just going to go to waste. It's like that freezer in your garage that you go out to once a week, and one time you go out there and you realize none of the lights are on and it stopped working and you got mess, and all you can do then is throw it out. But if salt can't be salty, 
what does he mean? Well, if we think about it in the relationship of people, if people are the salt of the world, then maybe we won't speak with seasoned language anymore. Maybe we won't, we won't be a preservative for the world anymore. One of the other uses that they had for salt was a kind of fertilizer. They would put it on the, the ground. Maybe, maybe we wouldn't be fertilizing and, and causing other things to grow that we interact with. The salt of the world. I think what he was getting at is you can't not be salty. See that double negative there? And not salty in the way that we use that word today. Is anyone salty in this room? Salty today, that guy is so salty right now. Means you're angry. Means you're irritated. Means you're frustrated that you got a, a chip on your shoulder. That's not the way that you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be hostile type of salty. But instead, what Jesus is saying is, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are the salt of the world, there is in no way that you live will you not be those people who speak with seasoned language. Where you will be those who act as fertilizer, causing things to flourish and grow wherever you will be. There is no place that you will go that you will not seek peace in your relationship where others are because salt does not lose its saltiness. There's no way that we can change the purpose that God has for our life that we are to live for Him and love our neighbors. They are ingrained into our being. We won't lose that saltiness. We'll never stop being that fertilizer. You know, Francis Chan says something about fertilizer and Christians. He says this, Christians like manure. Spread them out and they help everything grow better. Christians are like manure. Spread them out, they help everything grow better, but stick them in a pile and all they do is stink. So when we think about us in the world, we are, we are going out. We're not just staying together. We're going out to live for God among other people, to love the people we interact with, and we will never lose our desire to love one another, to care for our neighbor, to see them grow better, to see them flourish, to seek peace with them, to be that preservative among the world, preserving and living out God's desire for our life. And Jesus adds another metaphor, the light of the world in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. This is a similar metaphor. 
light always goes out. If we shut off all the lights in here, we'd still see that one, and it would illuminate, piercing through whatever darkness is in here. But, but I think it takes it a step further. Even though light is this ordinary thing that we see each and every day, we experience it through candles and through, through these lights and through maybe handheld lanterns and lamps that we have at home. We experience it through maybe tiki torches in our backyards or, or those, those headlamps that we put on our heads when, when you go running late at night or you're out camping. We experience it each and every day. I experience it at night when I walk into my kids' room and they have that night light on that pierces into the darkness and, and gives them that sense of security, a sense that they have safety. But it goes beyond the physical characteristics of light and perhaps warmth that we get from light. It goes into a contrast of good and evil. In the book of John, Jesus declares that he himself is that light of the world. And here he says to us, you are the light of the world. Living, breathing demonstrations of God's love. His light piercing into the darkness of evil and frustration and discontent. The light which is provided by the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, recognition that he's not just a man, but that he himself is, is God and the Savior of the world. We've encountered that salvation, and therefore we too are declared the light of the world. A city on a hill will not be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it in the middle of the room and, and put a bowl over top of it. Jesus is saying that the Israelites are, are supposed to be that light of the world. They are, were the ones who were supposed to be living out God's covenant values among people that these other people in the world would experience God's love and His grace and His mercy and he's kind of saying, you're not doing it. But there will be another set of people who believe in me and will do that. If we are Christian, we will be always perhaps saying, letting your light shine. Anyone? The children's song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Steve, you want to sing it? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine under a bowl in a corner. No. Because when you live your life following God's great commandment, the loving of God and the loving of neighbor, there is no way to separate out and, and pull out that light and put it in a corner. There's no way to subvert the values of God's kingdom with your own agenda. So when you live 
among your neighbors, you will not be loving them because you want them to become Christian. Instead, there's no room for that motive. Instead, because you follow Christ and have embedded your life among the great commandment that says, love God and love people, there will be a way that you pour yourself out, not thinking about your selfishness and care for others above yourself, just as Christ has done for us. It's not an evangelism strategy. It's a full, encompassing way of living where God's values have trumped over yours, where you care for others just as Christ has cared and loved you. Not an evangelism strategy, but a way of living, not hidden ulterior motives, just the compassionate love of God upon other people. You could think of it as loving people into the kingdom. That others so much so experience the grace of God that they too want to give that grace back to others. Loving others into the kingdom. If evangelism is your only motive, you won't be a very good neighbor. Because then, then you're going to be thinking about what you can get out of it. How can I do this? How can I talk to that person about Jesus? And that's not a bad thing to do. But talking about the love of Jesus and experiencing the vast love of Jesus are two things you could say is important, but just begin here. Begin in these ways where they experience the love with no ulterior motive. Thinking of growing them. Thinking of making them flourish. Thinking of preserving them. And those who experience the love of God will certainly come to know the God that we talk about. The God that we speak of. Loving them into the kingdom. So let us go out and, and genuinely love our neighbors. Not, not caring them so we can get something out of it. Not caring for them so we can be like, well, I brought this person to Christ. Instead, loving them and honoring them and respecting them. Preserving them. Seasoning our words with salt when we're with them. Reflecting God's love and glory and light within their lives in each and every interaction we have with them. Let us pray that God works through us and takes desires away, ulterior motives, and implants in us the desire to love others in honoring him in the process. Father, we thank you for your love. It's our humble desire that others would get to know that love. But please take from us by your Spirit that being the only reason we talk to our neighbors. Instead, in our lives, Lord, implant within us the great commandment that we would do all things for your honor and that we would 
live our life in a way where we honor and love each and every person we interact with. Whether we know them well or we just met them today. Cause your spirit to work through that grace and love which you have implanted in us that we may be able to love others into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.